0: Welcome to Living Southern Oregon, a podcast dedicated to discovering and exploring all Southern Oregon has to offer. I'm your host, Simona Fino, and I will be introducing you to the people who live here, the things they love, and what makes Southern Oregon a magical place to call home. Welcome everyone to another episode here of Living Southern Oregon. Today I'm excited to welcome Chris Adlem, who came to the Applegate Valley in 2021 as the Regional Fire Specialist at OSU Extension Center. He works with communities in Southwest Oregon to learn how we can live with fire. This includes figuring out ways we can come together to make decisions about our cherished landscapes learn about fire's role in ecosystems, and increase our use of prescribed burns. Chris is also committed to learning from indigenous people about these issues and to support them in their own use of fire to manage their homelands. In his free time, he's passionate about botany, bird watching, and woodworking. So without further ado, welcome Chris.
1: Thank you, Simona. It's good to be with you today.
0: Yeah. Well, as always, I like to find out from folks how they ended up in Southern Oregon. It sounds like perhaps the job brought you here.
1: Yeah, that's right. It was it was the job. You know, uh, we have specialists throughout the state in my program in the fire program, and so I got the pick of where I wanted to be. And you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy that I ended up in Southern Oregon. It really is a, a, a beautiful place, and I feel a lot of affinity for this region.
0: So I'm just curious, what were your other options? Was that the nationally, or the West uh, Coast, or
1: throughout Oregon? So throughout we're part Oregon. of a, a state it. program, okay. right? The, uh, the OSU Extension Fire Program, and so we have a specialist out on the North Coast, the Willamette Valley, uh, the East Cascades, the Northeast, and the Southeast. I uh, previously did my PhD uh, in California at UC Davis, and I really I really love the climate. To be honest, this uh, Mediterranean climate and the incredible biodiversity in this region as an ecologist, it's really something that I, I just love the botany, the bot- botanical diversity and, and all the, the wildlife and the beautiful ecosystems and such variety.
0: Yeah, we do. We're very blessed that way. Mm All right. Well, we're we're glad you chose it too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So, your job title, regional fire specialist. What does that mean? What do you? I'm curious. What your average day looks like? What What are your job? What does your job kind of entail?
1: Yeah. So you know, fire affects all aspects of our landscapes and our society. So. Of course, that can mean a lot of things, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know I can't be everything for anyone and it's in our program we're called to sort of uh focus on on some areas and play to our strengths um, for me really i I'm interested in understanding the role of fire in the ecology and how we can move towards fitting into that. We know that we're not going to get rid of fire; we know that it's here to stay and Yet we have options for what our relationship to fire looks like. Mm -hmm. So my work is, I see it as really fixing our relationship to fire. There are, like I said, lots of things we can do. We can get into that. But that's that's what I do. So when people uh, reach out to me to talk about ways in which I can assist uh, their communities in becoming empowered, to take charge uh, of the, their, their fate in this fiery landscape. That's my favorite thing, you know? And that can mean cleaning up around your house, doing defensible space work, and it can mean uh, setting controlled burns, and it can mean working with agencies to make decisions across the millions of acres of okay. federal lands that we have here. So it can be a lot of things. I work with a lot of people. I work with ranches in Douglas County. I work with, you know, homeowners in the Applegate, I work with uh, tribes, I work with the federal agencies uh, and state agencies, I just work with a lot of different people, uh, which basically means I spend a lot of time on Zoom, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So when somebody calls you, what are they typically, let's say, we'll start with a homeowner or, or somebody like that. Then what, what would be a typical phone call? What are they kind of looking for in terms of support?
1: The good thing about right now, if you're a homeowner, is that there are a lot of different programs that can assist you. ODF, mm-hmm. the Oregon Department of Forestry, has programs. Uh, the FireWise program, for example, which people can get together and create a FireWise community. And that is a way to get organized and uh, work together towards being more resilient to, to fires. Um, then we have other agencies, the Office of the State Fire Marshal and so on. Um, my focus is a little bit more on the forest and the landscape. And So if a homeowner wants to talk about defensible space and that sort of thing, they might be better off talking to the Office of the State Fire Marshal or the Oregon Department of Forestry. but. It's also my role to connect people to the right resources.
0: Yeah. So with with dealing with more of the bigger land, which a lot of people are right up against BLM mm-hmm. land. So that is something that I know is of concern with with folks when they're that far out and that you know adjacent to a BLM land. Is mm-hmm. that something that would be more your wheelhouse of supporting in that realm?
1: Yeah. I I, I live adjacent to BLM. Okay. So I know well what you're talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that there's a lot of, of work that can happen when people get mobilized and, you know, want to take charge of, of their landscapes. I really mm-hmm. feel strongly that we have mechanisms to support people being empowered in that way. So, you know, if I can, I will help people to establish that connection with BLM, and we can start thinking about, you know, how we can work across these boundaries. You know, fire does not care about boundaries. Right. So uh, we need to be working together and, and coming to uh, solutions.
0: Yeah, something you said a couple of times that I really love hearing is the empowerment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit more. I just, yeah, I think it is very disempowering, and and people feel very fearful, Mm -hmm. and when fire is is nearby, and so how how what are ways that people can be feeling more empowered? Is that you know being connected to these different agencies and having an understanding of of their role. Or what what would be kind of your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, no. First of all, you, I, I feel that too. You know, when the sky fills up with smoke and, you know, you have this massive fire just over the hill or whatever. I know just how that feels, and you can feel very small and probably like there's not much that you can do. But really, I do believe, and I'm a, maybe a little bit of an idealist, but. You know, there are mechanisms we can come together and we can have these important conversations about what is important to us and how we work towards securing that. So we have groups throughout Southern Oregon that are doing just this, you know, and uh, we have just community groups. We have the Illinois Valley Forest Restoration organizing group, Ivy Frog. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> and we have, you know, the Applegates Fire and Fuels Working Group. And we have all sorts of little groups like this that yeah. are springing up. And people are having these conversations and your local ranger is going to be there and the BLM and and people are going to you know start talking about, okay, what is it that we, that we want to see here? What can we do? We can't wave a magic wand. But we can work together towards solutions that are going to make a difference. There's a lot of funding right now that's coming in, too. And seeing that, that citizen involvement, really, I think is, is important to support moving towards solutions.
0: And what, when you say there's a lot more funding, where is that coming from and what's that meant for? What kinds of funding are you seeing starting to happen that may not have been there before or maybe it yeah. has been there?
1: Yeah, I think that both at the state level and at the federal level, we're seeing a rising awareness of just how important this situation is. We, and we know that if we don't do anything, it's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even in the best case scenario, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. So I don't want to you know, paint a rosy picture here, but we, we have a lot of interests coming together. And there are a lot of things that, that there's just a lot of agreement. That we need to take care of our forests in the right way, and that will mean that we can we can we can preserve these forests for future generations and We know that's just so important for many parts of society for so many reasons it 's just the places people grew up and took their kids to the swimming hole and you know the, the economy and recreation and we have people who gather mushrooms, and we have all of these links to these forests. It's really important, just the forest is our home just as much as houses are, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to do that work from the home all the way out into the forest. It's not sort of one or the other. It's we need to look at the entire landscape and our place in it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I like that from the home all the way out to the forest. Mm -hmm. We tend to think of our defensible space, which of course you have to do, and that's super important. Mm -hmm. But broadening that scope to where we're really looking beyond So you're saying you also talk with ranchers and like you're you're talking to so many different people. Um, I'm guessing there's probably different goals people have or different, or do you see, or maybe not. Maybe people are all kind of the same. <laughs> Protecting their land probably is a big piece of it. But are you seeing differences where you're talking to different folks and how do you kind of? bring that all together, I guess. Yeah.
1: I, well, I think you need to meet people where they are and certainly people have different relationships with their land and people have different relationships with fire. You now, these ranches I mentioned in Douglas County, it's very interesting to me because they've been using controlled burns for generations. It's just what they do. And so, you know, the kids grow up doing controlled burns. Mm-hmm. That's just what they do at 10 they're out there and they've got a drip torch and you know they're they're burning the pastures and uh that then they grow up and they then when they go to college they uh pay for that by doing firefighting in the summer so it's a whole way of life you know and it just it just fascinates me this culture that that people have there in Douglas County and then we see this in other places you know as well and of course uh, tribes, it's the same thing, right? Uh, indigenous people have a, a relationship with fire that is very different and maybe even opposite to what I grew up with as a as a non-Indigenous person. And I think there's just a lot to learn by coming together and sharing our different relationships to fire, because I think we can all acknowledge that the way we've been thinking about fire for 100 years, basically we're just going to put it out and it's going to go away. Mm-hmm that's not that's not working out right so we need to learn how we can work with fire and have fire be part of our surroundings in a way that's not a a catastrophe every time
0: yeah i'm super curious to learn more about indigenous and how uh, uh, folks who have been using fire what what has been kind of the key differences that you've seen as far as how they approach
1: you know that's that's very fascinating to me too and it was one of the things that that was part of my my doctoral studies was working with tribes in California who really wanted to educate people about their relationship to fire and how we can work towards fixing our relationship with fire and a lot of changes have happened just in the last few years with new legislation that's been introduced and Agencies really ramping up their commitment to, for example, controlled burns. And you can see that that is really the advocacy of tribes that is at work behind all of this, this progress that we're making today. So it's very interesting to me the way that tribes are pushing for changes, and we're seeing that increasing. The bottom line is that for a lot of tribal folks, fire is just kind of seen as a positive thing. Mm-hmm. right it it has a positive overall it has a positive influence on on the landscape and it's what enables them to have access to healthy ecosystems for all of their purposes for the gathering of food plants berries basketry plants uh to keep animal populations healthy and so that to me is a little bit you know coming from my background as a non-native person it's mind blowing because of course, I grew up hearing that fire is uh pretty much bad it's it's bad we should we should keep it under control it certainly has no place on the landscape and then this this these cultures that are saying really the opposite no if you have the right relationship with fire, it is a good thing mm-hmm. it is a positive contribution to healthy societies and ecosystems and so that's that's very different like I said from From what you'll hear from, um, you know, non-native culture and, and that's really the emphasis has been putting fires out and, you know, taming fire, taming nature. And we're just seeing that that's, yeah, that's not really working out so good for us right now.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's been a general thought process for most people around nature. Anyway, it's a conquering, it's a, you know, it's a getting control over, uh, we're going to climb those highest peaks. We're going to do all this, you know, take, take control. Um, and really I appreciate the the wisdom there of learning to see the positive Mm -hmm. and appreciating it from a different view. And I think probably where most non- indigenous folks struggle with that is when it's close to home Mm -hmm. or they are feeling personally threatened or in those, in those kinds of situations. But as far as, you know, fire being good for the environment and good for our forests, I think that's something that people are open to just Mm -hmm. because we've, we've heard that. I know I've certainly heard that. I think the question is how do you embrace that and allow for that while at the same time protecting homes and homesteads and if they're where that balance is. And I don't know if that's something that you, you probably (laughs) talk about fairly often, I'm guessing.
1: One of the parts of my job that I enjoy the most is training people in the use of controlled burns, prescribed burns Mm -hmm. and seeing people who've never seen fire used intentionally. And then they see it for the first time it's remarkable because, you know, of course, people are skeptical, yeah. right? We, Why we t- would you we, set
0: something on fire? <laughs> we,
1: we're like, no, I, I assure you, we have a plan. <laughs> we have engines. We have the permits. This is legal. You know, we have a system. There's qualified people, you know, in charge. This is going to be fine. And yet when people actually see it, their eyes just kind of grow wide. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, there's a system. And you can you can do this, and mm-hmm. fire is predictable, and you can work with it. it just, we tend to see only sort of the 400-foot flames on television on, in the middle of summer, and we imagine that fire is just this kind of malicious force that will always kind of betray us, even if we try to use it mm-hmm. uh, intentionally. And in, in reality, you know, when people see those controlled burns, it's really quite beautiful. Uh, we, we have uh, a prescribed burn association here in the Rogue Valley, which is a, a group of landowners who work together and support one another in uh, doing prescribed burns uh, on private lands. And one of the interesting things is that it's really open to anybody. So anybody can come to our burns ah. and, uh, and, be, and be a part of it. So, you know, you'll watch
0: and check it out
1: more than watch. You can get a hand tool and you can go right over on the line and, you know, you'll you'll work with a team of folks under the supervision of somebody who's, you know, has experience. (laughs) And uh, and 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 that's really the the part where it's empowerment. Like Mm -hmm. that is empowerment It's like people can now not only see it, but be part of it and realize that it is completely accessible. We're talking about, let's be clear, we're talking about doing very low intensity controlled burns, uh, mostly outside of fire season, under, you know, cool-ish weather conditions, right? So, again, mm-hmm. we're not talking about Going what you're seeing on TV right now. It's, it's <laughs> September. What you see on TV right now, that is not what we're talking about, right? Yeah. And so, but people see it and the fire, you know, the flames are sort of a foot tall and they're very slowly moving across the forest floor. And I think it's 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 empowering and it's healing because mm-hmm. it shows what, what fire looks like when you have that right
0: relationship with fire. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And, and you're, you're seeing not fire in its healing
0: moments, right? Yeah. That's as opposed to, and it's destructive, which we don't typically think of fire As healing yeah Yeah. so I'm curious as far as the prescribed burns tell me a little bit more about what the purpose just for education if no if somebody's never really understood Mm -hmm. a a controlled or prescribed burn what is the main intent and purpose of doing that how large are those what's yeah tell us more about that
1: using controlled burns has many purposes prescribed burns and one that might come to mind right away is reducing the risk of having an intense wildfire. You know, so let's start there. Historically, fire burnt throughout the Rogue Valley about every eight years. That means that, you know, I'm 36. So at my age, uh, if I would lived here all my life, fire would have burnt the whole Rogue Valley at least four times. Wow. Right. So... We sometimes say there's a lot of fire or there's more fire now than there used to be. Well, maybe compared to sort of 30 years ago, but compared to 150 years ago, there is a lot less fire. It's hard to imagine how much less fire there is, really. But back then, you know, overall, those fires were very mellow. Because if you imagine a fire coming every eight years, there's not going to be that much there to burn. The forest floor is going to be quite sparse. There's going to be some, some grasses, a little bit of pine needles, a few sticks, but nothing compared to the kind of fuel load that we have now. right? And so that's part of the reason behind controlled burns, is that we're trying to get back to a landscape that has less fuel on it so that the next fire will be also less intense. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just one reason why people do... Prescribed burns, people do it also because it benefits wildlife, you know, deer and elk and other herbivores really enjoy the fresh growth on those shrubs when they start growing back. That is a lot more nutritious. It has higher protein. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that benefits herbivores and all of the food chain. It benefits wildflowers that would get crowded out and shaded out over time. It benefits birds, and uh, pollinators, so for conservation, that's another reason, biodiversity, and then other people use it because they want to improve the quality of forage for livestock, and of course indigenous people use it for their own cultural purposes, including making basketry plants healthier and uh, more abundant, and um, other, other purposes.
0: Yeah. So, are prescribed burns mostly on public or federal lands versus private or both, or how does one decide? Yes, my my private property is could be used as as a site for a prescribed burn versus mm-hmm. no, not not an option or not something you'd want to do.
1: So, a lot of people have done thinning, mm-hmm. and. If you are in certain areas, you can get funding to do thinning. For example, working with the NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service. And uh, right now, for example, there's the West Bear Project, which is basically from Jacksonville down through Phoenix, on that west side of the valley. And um, there's going to be a lot of work happening in there, a lot of thinning of small-diameter trees, and that's going to be great. It's going to reduce the amount of fuel. It's going to leave more room for the trees that are left to grow and be healthier. So that's a good thing. But in 10 years, what are you going to do? Because it's all going to start to grow back, right? So prescribed fire is really useful if you've already done some kind of thinning. Mm-hmm. And then you, want to, you don't want all that to go to waste, So you know, within 5 to 10 years, ideally, you want to come back in and do a prescribed burn while there's still not a whole lot of fuel, and so it'll be very mellow. But if you wait 20 years, you're going to have to go back in with chainsaws again because it wouldn't be appropriate at that point to use prescribed fire anymore.
0: Got it. So you're not going to just use it anywhere because we have such a fuel load that a prescribed burn in a place like that is going to be...
1: It would... um, it might be unsafe, but mostly it wouldn't reach the objectives of the landowner, right? You you wanna you, you you don't you wanna leave behind, you know, a healthy forest. And sometimes that actually means you need to do some thinning mechanically with chainsaws, with you know mm-hmm. because you can get to a point very quickly where that prescribed fire is not gonna be hot enough to thin the trees that you want to remove right mm. so you can't just expect the fire to do all you know all of the work if you've gone Too decades <laughs> you know since any work <clears throat> happened okay. uh, that's not gonna have the result that you want so
0: So, if somebody was interested in doing a prescribed burn on their property, or wants to check one out sometime just to see what they're about and learn more, could they go to this Prescribed Burn Association yeah. and find out more information there? What?
1: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, there's a website, Rogue Valley Prescribed Burn. Uh, what is it? Rogue Valley PBA. dot com. And if you go to Rogue Valley you can fill out uh, a form to say that you're interested in learning about how to do prescribed burns by going to one of the burns. Uh, So an interest form for participating. And then there's an interest form for if you have property that you think is ready for prescribed burn, you can put your information in there to be on the list for doing a prescribed burn at your place.
0: Excellent. So uh, really, people want to make sure they've got things thinned out before they're even considering doing a prescriber. And Is kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Okay. I, you know, I, I don't want to totally close the door. It depends on what your forest looks like. Right. I mean, yeah. it's complicated. So if you have uh, oak woodland, for example, you might not need to do a lot of work because, you know, those oaks, they don't tend to get crowded in the way that, say, firs do. Mm-hmm. So and then, if you have a sort of really mature forest with really big trees, you could probably do some underburning with with less work, and it's it will depends a little bit on what your forest looks like. But yeah, yeah, most of the time, it would probably be a good idea to do some thinning
0: first. Got it. Very cool. That's yeah. that's super interesting. To I I didn't know that that association existed. So. I think that would be fascinating to yeah, check everyone out sometime. You know, just...
1: ideally, the, the long-term goal is that the Prescribed Burn Association is not sort of there to do all the work for people. It's really the idea, again, is to empower people to work together. The Prescribed Burn Association exists to coordinate people who are interested in doing this. Mm-hmm. And so the more people want to do it and want to help each other out, you know, that's that's what we're all about. Uh, we, we do, uh, sometimes we do classes on uh, learning of basics of, for example, I'm, I'm working on a class right now to learn about the basics of planning a prescribed burn, uh, which is to be open to everybody, uh, no experience required. Learn about sort of the building blocks of how you put a burn together. Uh, and And yeah, over time, we hope that people can once they've learned, they can write their own burn plan, they can just call up their neighbors and, and call up their friends and, and be ready and able to do it and have the equipment. So yeah, that's really our vision is to support people in, in being able to do this in a way that makes sense to them and their communities.
0: Excellent. And so how many happen a year or how, how frequent are they in our area?
1: Right now, most prescribed burns that you hear about are happening on public land, and Mm -hmm. probably most of that on Forest Service land. Uh, The Ashland Watershed is known nationally as an example of a place that's really been doing great work Mm. on using prescribed fire, because they understand that if their watershed burned at high severity, it would be a big problem. For their water source, for the you know the recreation that's so important for for people in Ashland, and just the health of this remarkable forest they have, there's not a lot going on on private land yet, but we see that is starting to change right We have the state of Oregon is really signaling that they want to support private landowners in using prescribed fire because For all, you know, it it sounds kind of scary. You're going to set this (laughs) land on fire. I mean, but it turns out it is very, very safe. Uh, Escapes are incredibly rare. Escapes that when they happen, rarely cause any damage. There was a study recently looking for escapes in the last 20 years, and they couldn't find any on private land. At all, And then on federal land, there were a few, but there was almost none of those escaped from private land onto from public land onto private land. It didn't cause any damage. So, I mean, really, we are talking about something that is, that is quite mm-hmm. safe. It's also it's also really cost effective. Right. So compared to going in there with a bunch of machines and a bunch of saws and, you know, a whole crews mm-hmm. of people and cutting, you know, it is actually the best the most cost-effective way to treat large areas.
0: Yeah, that's what I was just kind of thinking when you were talking about it is, you know, when you talk about doing the thinning first and then if you're doing a prescribed burn every five to eight years, eight years or whatever, mm-hmm. ten years, If you're, it sounds like that's a great way of maintaining. Yeah. Then you're not having to keep going back in mm-hmm. and doing the thinning.
1: Yeah. And we also in in Southern Oregon have really great contractors. So if people are looking at burning a really large area or doing something kind of technical maybe that would be not something the Prescribed Burn Association would tackle with a volunteer force, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, we have, we have really good contractors. That's, that's another thing that we're fortunate about here in, in Southern Oregon.
0: Well, I want to kind of transition into a little bit more just about you living here in Southern Oregon. You haven't been here that long, but it's yeah. obvious that you have an affinity for the area and it sounds like probably spending a lot of time in forests. You were just saying before we turned on the microphone here that you drive everywhere, you <laughs> all over the place. What have been some of your favorite places that you've seen and visited or favorite areas?
1: I, I'm a botanist. I love I love wildflowers. I love uh, you know the Siskiyou crest is really amazing, and you know the people also are, are just really interesting. I've spent some time recently in Butte Falls. Uh, the people in Butte Falls I've found are, are so so nice, and I just love going there. And they have this whole project where they came together and they bought. All of the land around the town to create a community forest, and uh, so now they have this this community forest, and that they they they're so proud of it, and I'm I'm proud of them. I mean, it's like it's amazing. They worked for years to get this, raise the money, and and they're so that's just inspiring to me. They just want to take care of this forest. They want it to grow, you know, mature and become healthy. And, you know, do prescribed burns and uh, educate people about the value of uh, proper forest management. And it's just, they just, I just love it because they're just, you know, regular people. And they just, like, this is what we want to do. And they, they they did it. And it's fascinating to me. And an example, I think, for places elsewhere in Oregon, too. Yeah, so, community
0: forest. I love that idea. Yeah. I've never heard of
1: that. I've never yeah. heard of it. Well, that. Yeah. Butte Falls <laughs> is known for its falls, but... Up until they bought this community forest, the falls didn't belong to the town. It belonged to Warehouser, And so, you know, now they have that the the, be- the falls that gave them their name is, is now part of that community forest. And just everybody was just so happy. You know, we went to the celebration last week and that just made me that just made me happy. You know, people who look for solutions and work together. And I think we can really learn from that.
0: Yeah very cool. So any other places that you've traveled around? And when you're traveling around, what what do you are you checking out properties for for uh, different areas or well, yeah, tell me more about what you're
1: Yeah, I do a lot about. of work with community groups, you know, okay. so again, uh people who are trying to figure out ways to work with their local agencies or to raise money to do work across mm-hmm. the area. And so we do a lot of field trips and we look at the condition of the forest and we talk about it, you know, and, and how it, how, what these places mean to people and what they would like to see there. And then we sort of work on figuring out how we can get to a a better place. Uh, So, and that looks different in different places, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there are also disagreements about what the best thing is to do. But, you know, I think that we can come together and, and, Usually, a walk in the forest and looking at things on the ground is, is a good way to come to some kind of agreement.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think when you're walking through the forest, it's usually hard to be too disagreeable, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even if you're in disagreement. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. Mm-hmm. And so how do, how do you like living here? For somebody who's thinking about moving here, what are some of the things that you would say to encourage or that you really love about being here in your first year or so, two years?
1: Yeah, Ooh, that's a big question. <laughs> first of all, and I don't know about this, but how, you know, if you're coming from somewhere and you're moving here, how do you decide where to live? Because there are so many cool places, mm-hmm. you know, and it's due to so many different ecosystems and different little communities, and every every place has got its own flavor. So I don't have an answer to that. I just continue to be amazed by it.
0: Where did you come from? Where did you move from?
1: Uh, you know, before I was doing my, uh, my doctoral work in uh, California. Before that, I lived in the Willamette Valley. Um okay. And I grew up in France, you know, so very okay, different, very different climate. But uh, yeah, so uh, I love I love the climate here. Really, it's um, winter is so nice. You can, <laughs> you know, it doesn't rain all the time, which I guess is. Maybe not Not good for I don't want to complain about rain here, but uh, it's kind of nice. You know, you can go out in winter and you don't need a, a coat most of the time. Uh, and uh, there's always something to do any time of year. There's just something to do if you like outdoor recreation. So um, that's really wonderful.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you're settling in well and you're not going anywhere anytime soon, hopefully. Well,
1: I, we'll see. I don't think so. Yeah.
0: Good. Good. Well, thank you. I really appreciate all of the insight, and I know I learned a lot, and I hope listeners did too, and and just another kind of viewpoint on fire, which is a topic that is on the forefront of everyone's minds right now, as we're kind of hopefully tapering down a little bit on our fire season and entering prescribed burn season, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, so that's that's the thing about prescribed burns is that they also make smoke, but the The promise is that it'll be a little bit of smoke throughout the winter instead of a whole lot of smoke in the middle of summer. So uh, as we go into prescribed burn season, when you see smoke in the forest, that's, that's because people are out there making that particular piece of ground healthier and more resilient to wildfires down the road.
0: Excellent. And then we can get out on our hikes and go out and check those places out for spring wildflowers and yeah. uh, oh, wild viewing of wildlife, which uh, that's right. You you mm-hmm. also are a, a bird watcher, or mm-hmm. you like birding. Yeah. And it sounds like you're.
1: Yeah, that, I, that, that's, you're, in, you know, you're totally right there. There are great places in Ashland. You can hike the trails and, and view places that have had prescribed burns and see for yourself what the forest looks like mm. afterwards. Um, and even places that have burned in wildfires, uh, you know, they they recover. And I think that that in itself is a good thing to, for people to see. So if mm. one of your favorite places has had a wildfire, you know, it, you will see that it will it will come back. And sometimes it will come back even more vibrant than before. And the birds and the wildflowers. So, you know wildfires are not our enemy either and um you know that's also i think an important thing to remember that that they have their benefits too
0: yeah do you have any hikes that you would recommend in the ashland area where people could go check out post prescribed burn that might be accessible
1: yeah i think i forget which trail is but if you get uh, if you go to the ashland trails i think it's the the white rabbit trail has uh Uh, some prescribed burns nearby there. And if you go up to Four Corners, that's one of the places that people go to. Uh, That Four Corners trailhead has had prescribed burns happen right there next to it. Um, And if you go all the way along the Ashland Loop Road by bike or hiking, uh, the Windburn Ridge area has had some terrific work done and it looks really good. Big trees, and lots of room in between the trees and, uh, you know, it's just really a picture of uh, what a healthy forest, uh, should look like.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to put that on my list of my next hike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I know I haven't done a whole ton in Ashland. Um, I tend mm-hmm. to stay in the Applegate area and a little bit out in Grant's Passway. So mm-hmm. I need to get to Ashland yeah. often. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you being here and taking the time. So, yeah.
1: Well, thanks for your interest and, uh, yeah.
0: All right. Well, everyone, we will be back again with another episode next week. And thanks for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Simona Fino and co-produced by James Dedeckis and Jaded Media. Original music by Samuel Lawrence.